2018, we are courageously connecting as a church. And for the next few weeks, I would like us to wrestle with courageously connecting in our marriages. And this issue is of a critical concern for us because as you may know, half of all marriages end in divorce. And those statistics hold true within the church as well as without. And so it's not just like challenging marriages, they aren't like just a problem out there. They're a problem here too. Now, for those of you who have gone through a divorce, I am truly sorry for the pain you have experienced. And I do not want you to interpret anything that I say in any kind of condemning way because you, you can't go back and change the past, right? But you can, from this point forward, live with hope for the future. In fact, surveys tell us that 93% of Americans, both singles, singles and married people, would like to have a happy, lasting marriage. But most are doubtful that that can actually happen. Do you believe it could be true for you? Now, I suspect some of you would say, oh, Pastor Brent, you, you don't understand. I mean, you're probably such an awesome husband. <laughs> and, and Barbara's just, she's probably such an awesome wife. I bet your marriage is just perfect. You don't, you don't get my spouse, man. All right? Uh, let me just explain things for you. There are no perfect marriages because marriage puts together two people who are imperfect. Happy marriages are just those where the couples have worked hard to courageously connect. And I'm, I'm telling you, I know what I'm talking about. One of the most challenging seasons in my own marriage happened many years ago. I was on staff here, but I was candidating with some churches in Oregon and Seattle. And now, one of, one of my negative tendencies, okay, that I've learned through, uh, through the years is when I get discontent, my tendency is to move on for something new rather than deal with the issues or the people that I may be having problems with in today. And so, you know, I'm, I'm a mover. And so, like, my brain was already in Seattle, and my, my mind was there, you know, my heart was there, and it was wreaking havoc on my family. But I couldn't see it. Well, uh, my kids were still at home. They were young. Barbara was struggling with, you know, the decisions I was trying to get her to make with me. And so she made an appointment to see a counselor. And the counselor did this test to, uh, to determine her emotional health. And her emotional health wasn't very good. And so I asked the counselor, okay, so what should we do? What should I do? And the counselor said, well, what would you do if I just told you your wife had cancer? And I said, well, I... I would rearrange my life and try to help her get healed. And she said, well, then do that. And I said, well, is there anything else I should do? And she told me, ask Barbara if there's anything she needs to say to you. And so I did that. And she told me flat out, I don't want to go to Seattle. I don't want to go to Oregon. I don't want to go anywhere. And then she began to pour her heart out to me about various aspects of our lives together. And I think for the first time, maybe probably in my marriage at that point, I actually listened to her instead of trying to talk her into doing what I wanted to do, which is what I normally did. 
And during those days, I realized we were heading for a relational wreck, and I was driving the car. We saw some dysfunctional um, behaviors. Some walls had been constructed. Some wounds had formed. Now, any one of us can head toward a relational wreck that can wound our souls. And so for the next few weeks, I want to help us courageously connect in our marriages. And if you're single and would like to get married, then the principles we're going to talk about will help you prepare yourself to be a good spouse in the future, and it will give you some characteristics to look for in a potential mate. And if you're single and you're like, I, I'm not planning to get married, that's cool. I think the principles we're going to look at can apply to other relationships as well, right? But what I want us to do for the next few weeks is focus on the marriage relationship in particular. So I want us to explore what Jesus said about marriage. And he actually only addressed it once, which is interesting. But what he said laid a foundation that I believe will help us courageously connect as couples. Okay, so let me set up the scene. Jesus was speaking to large crowds. He was by the Jordan River speaking to crowds. And a, a group of religious leaders called Pharisees were there. And they were trying to pick a fight with him. And they were doing this by asking him a question about divorce. And so this is Matthew chapter 19, verse 3. So some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Now, why would that question cause such tension? Well, in Jesus' day, there were two schools of thought about, uh, amongst religious leaders about divorce. One was led by the school of Shammai, the other was led by the, 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 the uh, Rabbi Shammai, and the other was led by Rabbi Hillel. And so they had like their own schools. And so the school of Shammai believed that a man could divorce his wife only for indecency, which in their day was some form of sexual immorality. But the school of Hillel taught that a man could divorce his wife for any and every reason, including ruining a meal or losing her looks. Now, historical sources tell us that the divorce rate among Pharisees was scandalous even among the Romans. In such a low view of marriage, it uh, led to the mistreatment of and marginalization of women in Jesus' day. And so Jesus was confronting that issue. And so the Pharisees were trying to pick a fight. So they asked him, can we divorce our wives for any and every reason? And you have to understand, in their day, only the men could divorce the wives. The wives could not divorce the men. All right? And so notice how Jesus responds. This is verse 4 through 6. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning, the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Now, did you notice what Jesus did there? He redirected their attention from why you could get a divorce to why God created the marriage relationship. And Jesus made two points, and I hope, hope you catch them, so I'm gonna make sure we get it. His first point is pretty obvious, and that is that God is for marriages. 
God created the marriage relationship, and he actually participates with the couple in the marriage relationship. And so Jesus viewed marriage as being God-ordained, good for families, and good for society in general. <clears throat> what do you believe about marriage? Now, Dr. Linda Waite is a sociologist at the University of Chicago, and she did extensive research on family relationships comparing married couples with cohabiting couples uh, and divorced people and single people. Okay, so you got the two categories. So she compared these two groups and her research found, this is interesting, that most people believe marriage is a bad deal for women and that divorce is better if, uh, for the children if the parents are unhappy. She also found that most people believe that marriage is just a private choice to make adults happy. And so if one or both of the adults are unhappy, divorce is the best choice. But her research found the opposite to be true. And so I quote from her book, The Case for Marriage. Her research found that married people live longer, have better health, earn more money, accumulate more wealth, <laughs> feel more fulfilled, enjoy more satisfying sex, and have happier and more successful children than those who remain single, cohabit, or get divorced. Now, I want to make sure you understand something. Dr. Wade is not trying to condemn anybody in that later, latter category. All she's trying to do, show through her research as a sociologist, is that marriage is good for you. So what do you believe about marriage? Now, let me tell you why I asked that. Because I think that sometimes when we grew up with dysfunctional parents, or if we grew up with abusive parents, or if we went through a devastating, ugly divorce growing up, we blame the institution of marriage. And so you end up with this low view of marriage. What you believe about marriage will greatly determine whether you can endure the challenging seasons that inevitably come to all marriages. If you don't really believe in marriage, you may not stick it out. But if you really do believe in marriage, and you really do believe that God is in on the marriage relationship, you will find the courage you need to weather the fiercest of storms. What do you believe about marriage? Jesus believed in marriage, and I'm asking you to believe in marriage too. Now, he made a second point. And so I want us to get the second point. I want us to go back to the passage so we notice the second point. Jesus said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one. So Jesus said that God ultimately desires within the marriage relationship that two people become one. In other words, he wants us to courageously connect. He wants to Different people with different life experiences, different personalities, right? He wants us to become one. He, he, and so picture oneness like two roads that unite side by side and, and wind through life together without either one diminishing. Jesus envisioned a complementary partnership where two people become greater than the mere sum of their parts together. Now, marriage is the pursuit 
of oneness. Marriage is not oneness, and that's an important distinction. It's the pursuit of oneness, and God blesses that pursuit, and that pursuit requires commitment and courage to keep pursuing oneness, especially when we go through seasons where we don't feel as one as we did before. And so like, okay, so I've been married for over 33 years. And what I've noticed is that the feelings of oneness ebb and flow. Sometimes we feel more one, sometimes we feel less one. And that's okay. Because the key is to always continue the pursuit of oneness together. So just what is oneness? What is oneness? Dr. Larry Crabb has a PhD in psychology from the University of Illinois. And in his book, The Marriage Builder, I think he gives the most perceptive perspective on oneness that I've ever come across. And so Dr. Crabb asserts that oneness takes two essential elements, security and significance. He writes, oneness involves the security of being unconditionally loved and the significance of feeling unwavering support. So unconditional love makes us feel secure, right? And unwavering support, <laughs> it makes us feel significant. So do you feel unconditional love and unwavering support? And perhaps a better question is, do you give unconditional love and unwavering support, right? Because it's got to go both ways. So I want to talk with you a moment about developing the kind of unconditional love and unwavering support that will help us courageously connect as couples. So first, I'm going to get clear about what unconditional love is. Unconditional love accepts as is. Can you say that with me as an affirmation out loud? Unconditional love accepts as is. Now, don't get me wrong. I think we ought to always aspire to grow and to change and become better people, right? And I think we ought to be there for our spouses as they seek to grow and change and become better people. But I think it's, a, it's not a good thing to expect our spouses to change who they are. So let's get clear about what acceptance as is is and what it is not. Acceptance does not mean accepting gross behavior. You do not have to accept adultery, abandonment, abuse, or addiction. And acceptance does not mean changing your spouse so that they are more acceptable to you. See how you can do that? <laughs> because if you try to change your spouse and he or she doesn't want to be fixed, you're just going to create conflict and resentment. Now, if you're single, acceptance as is... <laughs> does not mean that you can marry a fixer-upper. Too many times I see single people desperate to get married who settle for a fixer-upper. And here's what I mean by that. They don't really want this, this spouse as is, but they feel very confident that I can fix her or him up. I can get them where they need to be, right? Now, I'm not talking about the guy who crunches his potato chips too loud or the girl who has 50 pillows on her bed, which is just ridiculous. I'm talking about the girl who always flirts with the guys. I'm talking about the guy who always gets angry when he drinks too much. And he drinks too much, too much. 
You know what I'm saying? Fixer-uppers don't work. You can fix up a house, but you can't fix up a spouse. Mm-hmm. You can quote me on that. That's tweetable right there, baby. <laughs> Unconditional love accepts as is. And here's what I would... If you can love a person as they are, and then they grow and change, well, that just, that's just even better. But unconditional love says, but even if you don't change, I'll still love you. You see what I'm saying? Okay. Unconditional love also believes the best. How we handle the difference between our expectations for our spouse and their actual behavior will determine if we live with conflict and resentment or if we live with love and oneness. When you don't know the motivation or the situation behind some behavior of your spouse, how do you tend to respond? Do you tend to believe the best or assume the worst? Unconditional love believes the best. Now, one of the most intriguing books on leadership that I've ever read is by Marcus Buckingham. It's called The One Thing You Need to Know. And in a certain part of that book, Buckingham presented a surprising study on marriages. He found this, this report uh, done through the research of sociologists who studied happy marriages. Okay, so you got that? They only studied happy marriages. And this is what they discovered, and it was surprising. They found couples happily married for 10 years or more did not have a realistic view of their spouses. All right? I'm going to say that again because I know it's throwing you off. They found that couples married happily for 10 years or more did not have a realistic view of their spouses. Instead, they had a noticeably unrealistically positive view of their spouses. And this is how they determined that. Because when they compared self-evaluation to evaluation, evaluating your spouse, the happy husbands and wives rated their spouses better in every category than their own spouses rated themselves. Now, sociologists labeled this response the positive illusion. Spouses created unrealistically positive views of each other, and that positive illusion created this spiral of love and oneness in their relationships. And so sociologists concluded this key to happy marriages. All right, here's the key. Find the most generous explanation of each other's behavior and believe it. All right? In other words, believe the best. Don't assume the worst. Believe the best. Okay, so that sounds all philosophical there, Pastor Brent. How does this actually work? So let me give you an example. So about 10 years ago, my wife became a realtor. And at first, to be honest, I really struggled with how often she would come home late at night because I wasn't used to that behavior and, and she would be gone on the weekends. And I was struggling with it. Was it because she just didn't care? Was it because she loved her work more than she loved her family? Was it because she just didn't want to help out with, you know, cooking dinner or, or dealing with dirty dishes? Or was it because she wanted to serve her clients well and that's just when they were available? Was it because she was concerned about our own retirement and sending two kids to college? When we believe the best about our spouses, that unconditional love makes us more one. 
Unconditional love acknowledges that nobody is perfect. Unconditional love means choosing to love a person as is, whether your spouse changes or not. Unconditional love means embracing the unique differences where we can complement each other. I mean, don't, you don't want to marry a person just like you, right? That would be hideous, right? Yeah. Unconditional love also means overlooking irritating differences that just don't matter. I mean, like he always leaves the, the seat up on the toilet. She always puts the toilet paper on the wrong way. And let's just be clear, the toilet paper goes over the top, not the bottom. We're not barbarians around here. Unconditional love means, embrace, means embracing your unique differences. It means overlooking the irritating differences that don't matter and... <coughs> It does mean communicating about the destructive differences that can wreck your oneness. It does mean you have to talk about stuff sometimes. Those bigger issues that are not just going to go away. You do have to resolve them in healthy ways. And unconditional love means believing the best about your spouse. So you can create those spirals of love and oneness. So pursuing oneness takes unconditional love. And the second thing Dr. Crabb said is unwavering support. And so I want to define unwavering support. Uh, unwavering support requires self-denial. And two people can't become one if they both stay very self-focused. And one of the most disturbing trends that I've seen in marriages today is how many couples sort of like, it's like they share a house with benefits you know what I mean? It's like, you know, he has his friends, she has her friends. He has his pursuits, she has her pursuits. He has his bank account, she has her bank account. Now, there's nothing wrong with any one of those things, but what I'm concerned about is that oneness takes more than sharing a bed and some bills. Oneness takes the kind of unwavering support that makes your spouse feel significant. And that takes time, and it takes self-denial. Now, I learned this reality the hard way. <clears throat> when I started dating, it was like, you know, I had a path, and Barbara had a path. And, and the, the right way this marriage would work should have been that our, that our paths came like side by side, and we, we go through life together, right? But that's not what actually happened, at least in our marriage. What really happened was it's like I took Barbara by the hand plopped her over on my path, and then I took off. And oh yeah, she tagged along, but she never felt included. And I really didn't spend much time thinking about her path. I was focused on my path. I mean, I was basically self-absorbed. But then, I'm a pastor. I'm doing God's work. I'm sort of hard to criticize that, Right? And Barbara admitted later, she didn't really tell me how she felt. And so there I am running down my path, and she's not telling me how she felt. And it created some tension, and it wasn't good. Um, so how do we go about showing unwavering support through self-denial? All right, Super Bowl weekend, so I wanted to get, it, get a sports metaphor out there. All right, you ready? So, uh, so there's a certain metaphor that I think does uh, reflect uh, unwavering support through self-denial. 
And uh, so I first, I remember speaking it to my son when he was getting ready to start date girls. And, and I, you know, and there's so much I know about dating girls. I mean, I could write a whole book on it. And, uh, and, and so I, I set my son down and I said, now son, let me, let me explain how this works. If you want to win a girl's heart, you have to learn how to take one for the team. Now, if, if you're not familiar with that sports metaphor, you take one for the team when your basketball coach asks you to set a pick on a guy that outweighs you by 50 pounds, you're going to get knocked on your rear end so another guy can score. See what I'm saying? You take one for the team when your coach asks, asks you to lay down a bunt to move the runner over when it's going to show as an out for you. You take one for the team when you're Jason Witten and you go across the middle to catch a ball for a first down when you're going to get hammered by the middle linebacker and the strong safety. You take one for the team when you do what's best for the team rather than what's best for you. When you take one for the team, you show the kind of unwavering support that will help your spouse feel significant and it will help you become more one. <laughs> so what do you need to do to take one for the team? Now, I'm gonna, I wanna give you just a little bit of advice and I'm gonna speak to husbands first because I find, guys, if we'll do our job, it'll make it easier for our wives to try to do the same for us, all right? So what am I talking about? Sometimes it's, it's the little things, okay? Sometimes it's just the little things. Like, when I went from binge-watching Breaking Bad alone, because my wife couldn't get into it, it was the whole acid scene dropping through the, the tub thing, man. She was out. Two, binge-watching Downton Abbey and Gilmore Girls with her. Oh yeah, uh, hey, I'm comfortable enough with my manhood to say I got into the Gilmore Girls. Just saying. Sometimes it's, it's taking one for the team by helping our, our spouses with their chores, with their responsibilities, when you can tell they're really frazzled, you know? Whether it's helping with cooking or helping with the kids or diapers or whatever. For me, most recently, it's involved supporting Barbara's dreams her aspirations, and her spiritual journey. Because if it matters to her, it ought to matter to me. And I ought to show her unwavering support, even if it costs me something. You know what I'm saying? What do you need to do to take one for the team this week? Then take one for the team and courageously connect with your spouse. Let's pray together. Lord God, we do thank you for creating the marriage relationship. We thank you for blessing it. And we thank you for participating in it with us. And my prayer, Lord, is for the couples represented here. My prayer is that we would sense your presence in our marriage. That we would sense your leading as we try to courageously connect with our spouses. <laughs> and Lord, I pray that you would help us to believe the best about our spouses, to show unconditional love to them in that way, to accept our spouses with their, their good parts, their, their challenging parts, and Lord, just to love them as they are. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us inspiration on how we can show unwavering support to our spouses. And I pray that as we pursue this kind of oneness together, that you would cause us to become stronger and stronger in our marriages, that you would help us courageously connect. In Jesus' name I pray, 
Amen. Amen.